There's something surreal about jumping out of airplanes from anywhere from 12,000 to 25,000 feet. And the next thing I know, I'm seeing high caliber weapons leveled at us. That's when I walked into the recruiting office. I have to leave DC now and I have to become something because if not, I'm going to be another statistic. My firstborn, he was born and then 12 days later, I was on a plane to Iraq. Real soldiers, real stories. Brought to you by armychap.com. Hello again to our listeners. Thank you for taking a few minutes of your time to hear the individual stories of our service members on the Soldier Stories podcast. I'm your host, Chaplain David Wright. I appreciate you tuning in as we do our best to share unique and inspiring stories of the people in our military. If you haven't already, please subscribe or leave a rating or review as this will help more people find this free resource. Just a reminder that this is a personal podcast and is not endorsed by or connected to the U.S. Army or government in any way. Okay, this is my first interview after transitioning from Korea to the great state of Alaska a few months ago, and I am really excited about today's guest. After I heard him speak at one of our local churches, I thought, wow, my podcast listeners would surely enjoy hearing from him. He's a retired Army Fulbird Colonel, worked with Special Forces in that community, served in the uniform for 30 years, and that included three mobilizations with Special Forces in the Global War on Terror. I'll Mm -hmm. let you talk more about that. So thank you for making time. Even though you are retired, you are quite a busy man at the moment, Mm -hmm. and I'll let you talk about that before we finish. So let's get into it. Sir, please introduce yourself, perhaps give us the uh, elevator ride version of your career and then hone in on the main content that you have for us today. Fantastic. Well, David, thanks for the opportunity to be here and talk to the public, but also hopefully other soldiers about my time in the service. I was a volunteer. I mean, everybody is today. Um, And I've had people say, thank you for your service. And I just tell them, look, I was a volunteer. I mean, uh, no one made me do this. Uh, I was happy to do it. It's one of the high points of my life and and anything I can do to talk about the Army and help promote the Army as a vehicle for not just defending our nation, which that's its primary mission. I mean, if you can find self-actualization in the Army, great, but that's not what you necessarily get. You You basically give yourself over to the greater good for a season of your life. And in this case, my season was long, okay? Um, My name is Keith Kerber and uh, I, Joined the Army. I swore in on the plane at West Point, July the 6th, 1977. Graduated from there May the 27th, 1981. The uh, person presiding over my graduation was uh, President Ronald Reagan. And uh, it probably was helped him being there by the fact one of my classmates' last name was Meese. His father was the Attorney General for President Reagan. But to put it in perspective, President Reagan had only been shot. The attempted assassination on his life was only a few months before that. And uh, he stood and handed out the diplomas to the first, you know, top. 5% 5% in the class. I was not in that group. I was close to it, but I wasn't in the group. And so I was alphabetically middle of the group, Kerber. And I remember watching the whole time thinking to myself, man, I'll be this close to a president and the you know, first guy I, could, I ever got to vote for. And so when I got my diploma, I sidestepped, reached over and put my hand in front of him. He was sitting down. I said, Mr. President, thank you for coming. He shook my hand. And I must have started a trend because after that, lots of people decided to do that. And uh, so there you go. Rangers do lead the way. But uh, um, graduated in 1981, first assignment was here in Alaska as an infantry lieutenant. I was able to uh, get the joy of commanding three platoons up here in Alaska. 
I left here. Uh, my first job I did after signing out for Fort Wayne I was to go to Anchorage and get married at the Fort Rich Chapel to my wife of 37 years, Nola. Uh, and uh, our honeymoon was going to Fort Bragg for Special Forces School. I commanded three Special Forces detachments, uh, two in Germany and one at Fort Lewis, Washington. And I had a total of 40 months of A-team time out of 10 years of active duty, which is about one out of every three days was on an A-team. That was a highlight of my military career for sure. I left active duty to go to Bible school. Uh, in 1991, it came uh, like one day in the control group as they had us to do in those days, commanded a company in the uh, Oklahoma Army National Guard Infantry Company and then an infantry company in Alaska. And uh, I commanded an infantry battalion in Alaska Guard. I commanded a brigade, Army Brigade equivalent in the Army Reserve. And uh, my final, you know, I guess you'd say the cherry on the Sunday was being the deputy commander of the siege of Sotov in Afghanistan in 2009 for OEF-13. I had three uh, wartime mobilizations and deployments, uh, Enduring Freedom 1, 2001 to 2002 with Special Operations Command Central Command. I went with 10th Group, my active duty alma mater, to uh, Iraq, Iraqi Freedom 5 in 2007 for the surge. And then I got the surge bingo again in 2009 for OEF-13 with uh, 3rd Special Forces Group. So that's a little bit about me. I was a Brand X guy, infantry for a couple years, and then SF for the next eight years, and then back to the infantry for about 10 years in the Guard, and then back to SF for my last 10 years, and uh, very happy to do that. So that's a little bit about me. Outstanding. Uh, I was looking at your bio and that first deployment, so are we talking right after 9-11? Right, I got called up in December and actually went down range in uh, early February, and pretty much, I think it worked out to be about either nine or 10 months of my year was uh, deployed time because I mean we didn't nobody knew then how long this was going to last right. and frankly when they called us up I anticipated being called up like in October but then somebody at the um, command realized holy smokes if we call up all the guys on the same time they're all going to go away at the same time and uh, so got there and was happy to do it um, surprisingly as a lieutenant colonel promotable and that's in the summer of 2002 we had a change of command our commanding we had an admiral, one-star admiral as our commander, followed by an army one-star who had uh, previously, his brigade command was Delta Force. Just an amazing guy, Brigadier General Gary Harrell. And he came in and we had a bunch of the top uh, active duty leadership switching out. So I was asked to be the J3 downrange as a lieutenant colonel promotable, which was a real learning experience when my counterparts were one-stars. You know, so yeah. it's like, you know, they called me Keith and I called them sir. So there you go. <laughs> but we were able to do what we needed to do and that was important. And uh, a lot was going on in the first year, and I was just kind of excited to be able to be there for that. Yeah, and I have no doubt that the Special Forces community really laid a lot of the foundation for the years that would follow. Oh, 100%. 100%. Well, as the name of this podcast, Soldier Stories, uh, every soldier, uh, person who serves in uniform has not only a story, but lots of stories. Yep. So I'm going to toss it to you and tell us uh, the story that you decided to share with us. Well, you know... You are a chaplain in the United States Army, and I think you're endorsing agencies, assemblies of God. Yes. That's correct. And uh, I am uh, a pastor. I've, I've served, you know, 30 years in the Army. My civilian job, the longest time civilian job I've had is a vocational Christian minister. I pastored a church in Wasilla, Alaska for five years, and I pastored a church that we started here in uh, Fairbanks for 10 years, turned it over. And uh, the thing that's been, that was interesting for me is I was, in my deployed times, I was a actively serving pastor. I left my church in Wasilla twice for six months. And uh, thankfully, my wife is also an ordained minister. She covered the church while I was gone. But I mean, it, it would be impossible to talk about my military career without talking about my faith because I became a Christian during my first 
assignment here in Alaska, and I was endeavoring to live out my faith as a soldier, whether on active duty or in the National Guard. So there's a scripture I'm, I'm very fond of, uh, David and I, in fact, I'm so fond of it, I'm, I'm seeking to study it at the PhD level, having already earned a doctor of ministry degree, and that's Romans chapter 8, verse 14. From the, New, from the King James Version, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So there's a lot more meat in some of these vignettes I'm going to share with you. I'm going to share two vignettes that I think explain a little bit about how the, the Holy Spirit led me at times, and sometimes I listened better than others. So the first vignette happened in February of 1985. I was stationed in, or excuse me, February of 86. I was in my last year of a three-year tour with the 1st Battalion, 10 Special Forces Group, and I was jump mastering a night jump. We went to Munich, got on a, a C-130, and what's peculiar about this time frame is the winter in Germany is sort of Fort, Fort Lewis-ish like, except that it can snow maybe, but I mean a bitter cold would be like zero. We were in the midst of a very deep cold snap. In fact, that night I think it was 20 below, which is more like Fairbanks winter, right? Yeah, right. And um, uh, in fact, I can remember as we were coming, uh, heading in over the drop zone, you know, okay, here's a river, I'm jump mastering, we were uh, tailgating this uh, C-130, and uh, I'm looking down and I can see ice fog, which is not something you normally see in southern Bavaria, right? I mean, there was snow on the ground, I had jumped this drop zone and jump mastered, in fact, the month before, it was, there was no snow on the drop zone. And uh, in the intermittent month, the, the farmer had plowed his field, and then it froze and then it snowed. So even though it looked like a very level drop zone, and again, I jumped this thing several times beforehand. Um, when I got out of the plane, no issues. I'm coming down, everything's going great. Drop my equipment and then I hit the ground. And you know, um, we're taught early on in jump school, if you keep your feet and knees together, you're gonna be able to walk away from just about any jump. And uh, in this case, I am confident my feet and knees were together, but I hit a furrow a plowed furrow, and it was like hitting a curb. One leg hit the ground, the other one, I don't even remember it touching the ground, even though I'm sure it did. The pain was, shall we say, memorable. In fact, uh, the thing I'll never forget is I was laying there whimpering um, on that frozen drop zone with what I knew was had to have been some severe injury was, man, I'm sure glad this isn't our target country behind the Iron Curtain because everybody would be able to hear me. Well, very shortly after I began that lament and call for help, the, the jump master, the DZSO comes up, drops on safety officer and says, how are you doing? How are you doing? And I said, I'm not doing good. And uh, he said, well, you're going to have to uh, take care of yourself for a second because I got another guy screaming. Turns out the jump master on the first pass, I was on the second pass, was our halo team sergeant. And now the headquarters company first sergeant. He had broke the same bone in the same leg as I had, mm. same type of situation. He had like a thousand jumps, I was on jump 64. So long story short, what happened before that jump is the key issue about being led by the Holy Spirit. So we're on the tarmac doing our pre-jump and I have this sensation inside me that something bad's gonna happen. In fact, uh, to be a very explicit, David, I had this sense, I mean, I didn't hear a voice, but I had this sense that there's something coming against you and desires to take your life. Now that is not a typical thing you hear as you're doing uh, uh, pre-jump, right? Or you're doing JMPI on your stick. And so I kind of shushed this out. I got busy, okay? Hmm. Well, 
the, the price I paid for that was, um, you know, I did, I did ultimately recover. I did, I was able to get back on jump status, even though my orthopedic surgeon said you're going to have this hardware in your leg for the rest of your life. We were able to entice him through the administrations of my special forces uh, team medic that I'm good to go. Pins came out. I made my jump again on solid ground and everything was great. But I want to fast forward because the issue here is paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is telling you. So fast forward from 1986 to 2009, I'm on my third of three combat tours, and um, I am the deputy commander of the Siege of Sotov, and I'm getting ready to go from Bagram Air Base to Kabul. And this is not something cool. This is not like Mission Impossible. This is not like pipe hitter stuff. I'm literally going with four of our logistics officers because we've been directed to expand our footprint in country. So we're going to need resources to build camps for our incoming A-teams. I want to emphasize this. A lot of people think about war as just, you know, one rocket attack, one firefight after another. But there's a lot of mundane things there. And the reason why I was going was because I was a colonel and I figured that if I was there at that meeting, I could help perhaps influence the, the obtaining of funds to do this job. Okay, it wasn't that I thought my guys, my loggies were bad. It's just I wanted to sort of give some heft to their meeting. So we leave the gate and we're in a convoy. We've got two MRAPs and two up-armored Toyota uh, Forerunners, right? Which are, look just like regular Forerunners, except they're, they're, they're beasts to drive because they're heavy because of the armor. And we're making our way, you know, it's, if you've ever been in a convoy in a foreign country in a war zone, you see a pothole, you think, oh my gosh, is this the big one, right? So we make it into Kabul. We're doing great. And imagine uh, you're on Airport Way where there's Airport Way and then there's these frontage roads next to it you know, with these, uh, you know, uh, bollards that sort of divide that main road from the frontage road. And we're driving on this uh, frontage road and we stop. Now, if you're in a convoy or war zone, stopping is bad. When you stop, you go on target. And I can remember looking to my right because I'm sitting there. I mean, I'm a passenger, but I have my M4 and I'm scanning my area to the right. And I mean, I have enough room to get my door open and get out of there if I needed to, but I see all these Afghan civilians there right next to us and you know lays in the burqas the whole nine yards and all of a sudden they start screaming and run away and that's when I notice over the dry, uh, the passenger side the front seat because I'm in the middle seat of this forerunner I notice there are vehicles maneuvering on us and I think wait a minute that's the Afghan National Army and the next thing I know I'm seeing high caliber weapons leveled at us and I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, so having been a police officer before I was a pastor, I unhooked my safety belt because I'm preparing to get out of it. I'm thinking, who do I shoot first? Then things start happening in very rapid succession. What happens next is I hear this noise as the 50 caliber machine gun on the top of the MRAP, which is directly in front of us, about as far away from me as, I mean, the bumper of our car to you, which is just across the table here, it goes off. I look over the, the uh, driver's side to look out the, the windshield and I see this ball of smoke. It's just the dust from the 50 cal pounding the pavement. And then the dust clears and there's an Afghan National Army soldier with an RPG pointed at our MRAP. Now here's the first miracle, David. He's not hamburger. He's close enough that the, the arc of the bullets goes over his head into the dirt, which stirred up the dust. And here's the second miracle. He doesn't squeeze the trigger up. Now, I never got to check that guy to see if he had a dose of spontaneous incontinence. 
Anybody who's shot up close and personal from a 50 cal and lives probably might have had that, that medical event happen in his life. But about that same time, I mean, I'm getting, I'm, I've got the door open in mine, I'm, I've got a foot out, and I'm, I'm getting ready to bring my M4 up to engage a guy who's probably 75 yards away, also in like a, a, a Humvee type vehicle, and he's out pointing an RPG. And I was like, this is the weirdest thing in the world because these are friendly forces. These are our guys. We, in fact, when I found out later who it was, I thought, oh my gosh, this would have been even more irony. We trained these guys. So I get out, I'm bringing my weapon up, and this is the part that's amazing. It's almost like a cloud came over us. I said, almost like it. And maybe this was only what I was perceiving, but it's like time froze for a second. And then instead of shooting at each other, which after the, the M250 cal went off, could have easily happened if we hadn't all practiced a little bit of fire discipline. By the way, did I, did I say we were in downtown Kabul? We're in downtown Kabul. There's civilians all over the place. And this downtown road is about to become a combat zone. Everything just stops. People start yelling. People are getting out of vehicles. Our interpreter, man, he is going cray cray on these Afghan army guys. I am proud to report I did not have spontaneous incontinence. I was able to make it through there with keeping all everything inside that needed to be inside. And after a bunch of yelling, screaming back and forth, red facedness, the Afghan army guys drive away. We get in our vehicles, we drive. Momentarily, we're in the embassy, getting ready for our meeting. Meeting goes off without a hitch. We secure our money and we get back. Here's the part that I want to put forward, because remember in the first story, I said, I had this sense that I should do something, that I should have prayed. I didn't pray, okay? In the morning before that trip into Kabul from Bagram, I had a real sense in myself. I mean, something bad could happen today. Now, by that time, um, I'm actually an ordained minister. I'm a Bible school graduate. I'm an ordained minister. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to stop here. I remember that parachute jump. I'm going to pray. In fact, I felt so strongly that I called home. And my wife wasn't there. I left a voicemail. I'm confident she prayed for me. What could have been a very bad moment, because it turns out those guys who were moving on us were President Karzai's personal security detail trained by who else but Army Special Forces. And they were doing everything they could because President Karzai had had several assassination attempts on his life. Now we were there, it's obvious. Look, we weren't sporting anything but US colors. It's obviously, you know, not Taliban. But you know what? When we are presented with hostile threat, we have the ability to engage. We, were, we, were, we would be well within our uh, uh, ROE, rules of engagement, to engage the guy, especially when a guy comes up to your vehicle and points an RPG at it. Right. But discipline maintained the day. But also, I don't want to have this anecdote go by just thinking it was a lucky day in the combat zone. I believe the Holy Spirit led me to pray. And I did pray, unlike the first time. And nobody broke their leg. Nobody got shot. We all went home. And on top of that, we got the money to expand our footprint. So that's my one of my many Army soldier stories. Over to you, David. Outstanding. No, that's, that's excellent. I see a couple things in here. Uh, first of all, to your main point, I see faith in action in the midst of military service and yeah. military leadership yep. and a crisis. Yeah. So there are uh, perhaps people that, that don't see uh, fighting wars and being a person of faith as compatible. But 
your living testament to something very different? Well, I think the Bible speaks about warriors and the Bible says in the Psalms, Psalm 144, blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands to war and my fingers to fight. There have been many people in the scriptures mentioned who had acumen in fighting. Just read the biographies of David's mighty men. Just read about David. I mean, that dude was the ultimate soldier, priest, uh, leader, uh, if there ever was one. So I think that we have that background. And I would say, even though Jesus is not accredited with fighting in a natural or temporal way, he certainly was a spiritual warrior. There's no one who will ever attain his level of spiritual warfare, for he literally carried the weight of our sin and aren't we glad for that? That's excellent. And um, just real quick, since you did bring it up uh, a little bit earlier, you said you began to follow Christ during your first assignment. Yep. So what's the what's the quick version of that? Quick version of that is that as a, as a senior at West Point, I walked into an office of foreign language instructors. I had branched infantry. It was like February of my senior year. And I was just talking with one of my instructors about where should I go for my first assignment. I had three places that were on my list. Alaska, I'd always wanted to come to Alaska. The 82nd, who doesn't want to go to the 82nd? And then Korea. And Korea was because it was a place where rumor was you could really come about as close as you could to combat without being in combat. Well, so I walk into this office and we're just talking. I mean, we're just having a conversation about assignments. And these, all the officers in this little room, maybe there's like five of them weighed in. One officer did not say anything. He looked at me. I, I, I think I might have seen before, he was actually a Spanish instructor. I was in Russian. So contact was like this, right, zero. And he said, Cadet Kerber, do you have a moment? I said, well, yes, sir. He goes, can I talk to you in the hallway? Sure, yes, sir. Walked in the hallway, very small hallway. I get out there first, he comes out second, the door closes, it's an empty hallway. He looks at me and says, Cadet Kerber, I just got one question for you. I said, yes, sir, what is it? He goes, have you given your life 100% to Jesus Christ? I was like, Pfft. well, that was not the question I was expecting to get, David. <laughs> and the long story short is this, that question got me thinking about where I was. Because he said, well, I said, uh, I go to church. Well, get, he, he asked me if I was a Christian. He said, I, I said to go to church, and I did. I was, I was raised in, uh, in the Roman Catholic faith. And I had been hungry for God, and I was doing my best to serve him, but I didn't feel like I had a relationship, okay? And uh, he prompted me to think about that. That was February of 1981. I started reading the Bible. I committed to reading the Bible that day because here's what I thought. I said, I will read the Bible cover to cover because if I do that, God will love me more. Well, he loved me already plenty. I just didn't get it. Mm. And so 18 months later, fast forward, after going through real life out of West Point, I realized, you know what? I'm doing well professionally, but I didn't feel I was well, doing well personally. And I needed a Savior. And turns out I found him. He wow. has a name. It wasn't me, by the way. I'm not my own savior, okay? Right. I needed somebody bigger, <laughs> better, stronger, smarter, and it turns out that was Jesus. Outstanding. No, that's incredible. No, thank you for sharing that. I know that those stories and your personal testimony will-, will Change my life, man. Hit a lot of people Change in, in my the life. right way. After these stories that you told, you ended up having some leadership in uh, emergency and um, planning preparedness. Is that yep. correct? Yeah. So here we are. In, you know, the back half of 2020, um, it's been an unusual year. We've had COVID, we've had civil unrests. Mm -hmm. uh, right around the corner, we're facing unprecedented variables in the presidential election and in state elections as well. What would you speak to the listeners concerning emergency preparedness? We've seen some things already this year. We've seen grocery stores being raided because of fear. Mm -hmm. We saw that in Korea before we, uh, we, we came back to the States. 
there's just a lot of variables right now. Uh, do you see potential for increased uh, national unrest or uh, what advice would you give to people here in this unique year of 2020? Sure, well, that's a great question. A lot of questions in that. Well, I'll just start with one and that says, yes, uh, after my first deployment in the war, I came back and uh, I, I was promoted to Colonel, I was on that deployment and uh, I discovered that there was a position in Alaska command called Emergency Preparedness Liaison Officer. And I would say this, the thing, when I got to the National Guard in 1991, when I was going to Bible school, you know, I looked at the status of training and, and readiness and I thought, oh my gosh. But I can say this, when I left 20 years later in 2011, we had just done an exercise in Alaska in 2010, an, a National Guard Bureau level exercise where we, our big test was an earthquake scenario. Well, 2018, we had a real earthquake and we didn't lose anybody. Nobody died in that earthquake. And also we were up and up on step again after a, a huge earthquake while in the middle of transitioning governors. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a worse possible uh, uh, scenario, but we were able to do that. So the thing I would say is if I was talking to people out there, military or, or, or whatever, civilian, I think they can have some confidence in their reserve components and their active duty forces for that matter, because they get called, called sometimes to go fight forest fires, to provide aid after big floods like Katrina. You can feel good that your military has the capacity and the capability and the experience to handle these things. Where I would speak to people who are perhaps listening and wondering about those concerns about, especially with the civil unrest we've seen in 2020 is this, is you never wanna make a decision out of fear. You never wanna make a decision based on fear. The Bible says that we've not been given a spirit of fear, but power of love and a sound mind, but that, you kinda of have to be a Christian to get that. So if people are anxious right now, go to the Bible, <laughs> get some help, get born again, get your savior, savior, and then move out from there. Now, that can sound very glib to people, so let me just say this. You're never wrong, and I, especially if you're living in Alaska, you're never wrong having a little extra chow, having a little extra water, understanding how you can get some heat in your house if the power goes out. The house we're in right now, I think the longest we've been out, been without electricity is a day. But there was a, a, a September a few years ago where we had one of those early September snows, very wet, trees are bending down, electricity's going off, and the power was off and on for five days at our house. Now, thank God it came on a little bit. We were able to run, and it was September. It wasn't 40 below. But I always tell people, the best way to keep from having fear is to have a little pre preparation. And you know what? When you know you have some stuff, it can help you handle if you have a bad situation. Natural stuff is good, but spiritual stuff's gonna help you get through the fear a lot better. So I hope that answered your question, David. That's a good word, absolutely. So now you're retired, been retired for, for a little while now, but you're not slowing down. No. Uh, you are, you are uh, pursuing something uh, in this uh, season, so I wanna give you a chance to talk about uh, what you're doing and why you decided to do that. Well, we, uh, I retired in 2011 from the Army National Guard, last Army National Guard, culminating my 30 years of service. But I mean, people ask me, how am I handling retirement? I said, well, I was a pastor the day before I retired from the Army, pastor the day I retired, and a pastor the day after. So I had a job, my, 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 my employment didn't stop, it's just that my, my drill weekends, I, I, I had basically spent 20 years having one week in a month at drill, and then two weeks a year in active duty, although the last 10 years was two years active duty over three separate deployments, one one year and two six-monthers. So it was quite a bit of, my last third was a lot more busy than my middle third, um, but for good reasons, of course. And uh, so we had felt impressed um, last year 
our dads, who at the time were 95 and 83, were, were needing some more help. We had an associate pastor. We had brought him on with the express purpose of preparing him to transition the church. In September of uh, 2019, we made the decision, this is the time to do it. We'll do it by the end of the year. Both our dads were alive, but they were looking like they were needing some more help. And I'd spent significant time that year in Florida with my dad. Well, the day we did that meeting after church, the Sunday afterwards, that night, I flew to Florida to be with my dad for a medical procedure, outpatient thing. We went in the morning, we're out by noon, and uh, he just did great. It wasn't, he didn't have cancer or anything like that. But lo and behold, uh, the very next week after that, my wife's dad passed away. My father, who's like a second father to me, World War II vet. And uh, less than 60 days later, surprisingly, my dad passed away too. So we didn't feel to stop the transition. We'd already moved that way. So in January of 2020, we, we were essentially retired, retired, retired. We didn't have a job, right? So we took some time, went, went away, and we, we felt like that was good because it had just been a blur with the responsibilities of uh, parents' estates, which both my wife and I had. And while we were on that time away, we felt impressed to, to uh, pursue public office. So I am running as the Republican candidate for House District 4 here in Fairbanks. It's the, the district's called West Fairbanks. We are five days away. I mean, uh, candidly, I'll be very open. When, when the Lord seemed to lead me to do that, I thought, what have I done to you today? You know, I mean, come on. I mean, it was not, it was not my dream of my life. If you call a Green Beret colonel a politician, that's like your mother's least favorite word. I had never thought that way. I'd never had an inclination way. had run for school, nothing. And uh, so I've done a lot of learning in this arena. But, you know, it seems very natural. I felt a little bit encouraged when I saw a lot of veterans, not just in my state, but around the nation, stepping up. Because I feel like people who understand that public policy actually has some dramatic costs. Public policy had me uh, at a, a plain side ceremony, at least that's what I was touted it was going to be, T turned out to be me leading six Green Berets pulling the remains of a Green Beret Sergeant Major off a helicopter. Hmm. You know, that's public policy as most real, in my opinion. When we make a choice to commit our people to war, we're committing their very lives. We better be thinking about this over the long term. And the same way at the uh, local level, and this goes back to your question about the, uh, the pandemic that we've been going through, David, and that says, we don't want to lose our Bill of Rights because we have the flu. That's right. Okay, now I'm not, I'm not pretending that COVID is, is a small thing. I'm not. I'm just simply saying that as a guy talking to another guy who voluntarily set aside some of his rights under our Constitution to serve in military service, I'm acutely aware of how important those, those rights are. And I want to, if I can do anything when it comes to disaster planning going forward, it's to at least remind us we, we want to be safe. We want to we get back up after fires, floods, earthquakes, or uh, pandemics. But we don't want to lose our basic civil rights in the process. I'm not saying that's happened, but I'm saying it, it's been pressured by that. I believe that many would at least agree with me in this that our rights have been pressured. So that's what I'm endeavoring to do. I'm gonna hopefully take down there if I'm elected to at least when we get in these situations, remind people we still have a constitution. Let's not forget about that. That's excellent. And there's going to be leaders. Yep. There's going, someone will fill that vacuum. Yep. And uh, I forgot who, who, who said the quote, but uh, the only thing that is required for evil to prevail is that good men do nothing. Right. And so, 
we have this amazing uh, nation that we live in and where the people get to participate in the government and run for office and be elected and, and serve the people in that way. So uh, thank you for stepping up to the plate. Thanks, David. Well, you used to joke in the Army, you know, if it was easy, anybody could do it. <laughs> you know? That's right. And well, Lord knows that's been put to the test over these days in the last few months. So well, that... last question along those lines. So people out there might be thinking about, hey, maybe not this cycle, but maybe in the near future, how does someone begin to run for an elected position? Like what is involved? What do you have to know? What do you have to do? Because there is quite a bit of sacrifice, I imagine, with time and money and challenges that, that get presented. So what have you learned so far in the process? Well, what I've learned is this. First off, I have tremendous amount of respect for anybody, even if they're not in the party that I affiliate with, for putting themselves forward for public office. And I especially have great respect for those people who have a regular job and try to do this on the side. I have put in six to seven days a week on this unpaid gig, all to do a basically, I said six months job interview, right? And uh, the, the board or the panel that's gonna pick me for this job number in the thousands, okay? And it's not like ranger school or SF school, special force school, where it's like, I will not quit, I will not quit, I will not quit, and as long as you don't get hurt and you, and you do the tasks that are required, you're gonna make it through it. Albeit, we know, a significantly smaller percentage of the people who start finish, but you just don't quit. This is, this is in the hands of somebody else. So first I would say this, the good news is there's resources out there. I Googled stuff and I bought books and I read books, but I'll tell you what, the thing I would say to anybody doing is this, it's not something you can just try. You have to make the decision up front. I'm committing to this. And uh, even in the race, uh, races here locally, we've had some people who started very strong, but then they made a choice to, to come out of the race or withdraw. And you know what, I, I feel for those people because even though I had no candidate against me in the primary, I treated it like an election. I mean, I was out there trying to get votes because it was like, it, it felt very heavy. And I will tell you that, that, that um, anybody who's wondering, well, you know, in Alaska, you can get into, a, in Alaska, you can get into a race through what's called the ballot petition process where, you know, it's like you get a sign-up sheet and you go out there and you get X amount of signatures and it's not a very large amount of signatures and you can be placed on the ballot as a unaffiliated uh, or independent candidate. But I would say that, you know, the Army's a team, the Navy's a team, the Air Force is a team, and the Marine Corps is a team, and so is the Coast Guard. And there's something about affiliating with a group, especially those who hold your values, that um, that you can feel the the not just the, the, the camaraderie of that group, but you can also feel the help of that group. There's logistics involved. So I'm not telling people not to go as an independent or unaffiliated candidate, but I'm saying, you know, um, it helps people understand where you're coming from if you join a group. And even one of the smaller groups, the third party, so to speak, like in Alaska, we have a veterans party. I mean, I would certainly be qualified for that. But the point is, is that commit that you're gonna do it and know that it's gonna be hard, but it isn't gonna be forever. Ranger school was two months. Special Forces school was almost five months. This has been like six months, but it's five days away from being one way or another. I'm gonna find out how it goes. So if you're out there and you're thinking about it, you're thinking about a noble cause, please give it good thought. If you're a Christian, put prayer into it because I committed to being a Christian before I ran for office and I'm planning on being a Christian after I'm done with this run and I don't wanna mess that up in the interim. The Bible says a good name is to be desired above riches and I want to keep my good name. I worked 61 years to get it. Outstanding. Well, thank you, sir, for your time today. Uh, you're a man that's committed to your faith, your family, and to leadership, uh, even in post-military years. So thank you again, and I uh, wish you the best going forward. 
and look forward to, to see, as you said, how this turns out in the next five days. Probably not as much as me. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you for this chance to talk about the Army. I love the Army. Go Army, beat Navy. <laughs>